Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Colossians chapter 1. As we pick up where we left off last time in the middle of verse 5. Colossians chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. Let us bow our hearts together in prayer, asking for the Lord's blessing. Great God, we bless you and praise you that we have this privilege to come into your presence now to hear you speak to us, to hear the voice of Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep. We pray, O God, that your sheep would, by the power of your Spirit, hear your voice and that we all would follow you through this wilderness wandering into our heavenly homeland. We pray, O God, that you would fill your people now individually and corporately here with your word and spirit, that we would know of the newness of life that is ours in Jesus Christ. May the proclamation of the gospel be accompanied by the power of the one who wrote these words through through his servant, the Apostle Paul. We pray these things for your glory and for our good in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please rise for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word, Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse, beginning of verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, As indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Beginning at verse 3, as we did last time, we now continue in the thanksgiving section of Paul's epistle. Last time we ended by looking at the middle of verse 5, as we just read, where Paul refers to the hope laid up for you, for the believer, in heaven. This heavenly hope is the reason, it is the basis or the cause for the love that the Colossians have for all the saints, indeed the basis, the cause of why the saints can love one another throughout history. This heavenly hope is defined as the kingdom of God in all its fullness. The kingdom of God being that reality by which God confers himself upon a holy people in a holy realm through an obedient federal head, Jesus Christ. This heavenly hope is the fullness of resurrection life. As we saw, as we saw last time, looking ahead to chapter 3 of Colossians, Paul unpacks what this heavenly hope is. It is newness of life, resurrection life in Jesus Christ, now on the inside. And our heavenly hope to come is the fullness of that resurrection life outwardly and bodily. This heavenly hope is the totality of blessing that awaits all believers in the age to come. And while this heavenly hope is primarily future, It is something that is also present, something that is presently enjoyed. This heavenly destiny changes us now, 
because we are already citizens of that heavenly realm. Philippians 3 verse 20, we are citizens of heaven. So here in the middle of verse 5, as, the, as your ESV translates it there as a new sentence, but in the original it is just another relative clause, as we pick up here in the middle of verse 5, Paul is still speaking about this heavenly hope, the newness of life that is ours in Jesus Christ, but his focus slightly changes. Here, Paul focuses on how the heavenly hope has been announced to us in a message and the nature of that gospel message. In particular, you can see there from verse 6 that this gospel message, as it focuses on newness of life, this hope that is ours laid up for us in heaven. This gospel message is not mere words. It is not merely referring to something outside of those words. Rather, since it proceeds from the living Christ, the gospel message itself is a living message. It is a living and life-giving message because it centers on and proceeds from a living and life-giving Savior. This, the full supernatural nature of, of the Christian religion is seen in this. That not only is salvation supernatural and from above, but the message of that salvation is supernatural. And we'll see how that is in this passage. So we see four things in the rest of this, or in this portion of the thanksgiving section. We see, first of all, the message of heavenly hope. The message of heavenly hope. That's there again in verse 5. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. So Paul is affirming here as he gives thanks to God for how the gospel has taken root in these Colossian believers, how it is changing them such that they are actually loving one another from a sincere and true heart. Paul is affirming that they've already heard about this heavenly hope. He's not going to teach them anything new, at least at this point in the, in the letter. He is simply affirming that Epaphras, that beloved fellow servant that we'll look at later on, has proclaimed this gospel to them, which is why they are the way they are, why they are growing in grace and adhering to the truth. But notice how Paul specifically speaks of the gospel here. What does Paul say the gospel is in verse 5? It is the word of the truth. Now, of course, as Christians, we are people of the truth. We form our lives. We pattern ourselves after what God has revealed in his veracity as he himself is the truth. And we conform ourselves to what is true and in accordance with his word. But truth is more than that biblically. Truth is not just what is not false. It would be highly irregular if Epaphras went back to the Colossians and proclaimed a message of simply true statements, that two plus two equals four. The truth is far, far greater, far higher than simply what is not false. Often throughout the New Testament, truth is not just what is not false. Truth and true are what are the highest and the heavenly the highest and heavenly things. So this is in distinction, especially as, the, as this distinction is made in the book of Hebrews, for example, especially 
in distinction from the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, that earlier administration, that earlier chapter of the Covenant of Grace, the gospel was clearly and truly put forth. The, the sacrifices of the Old Covenant, for example, showed that sin deserves death, that the only way to pay for sin is by a blood sacrifice. But the gospel was relatively veiled in those days because those animal sacrifices themselves did not save and were incapable of saving. Those, those gospel emblems of the animal sacrifices pointed not to themselves, but beyond themselves to the fullness of salvation in the one true sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Those were copies of the heavenly things. The author of Hebrews talks about how in the Old Covenant, there were the types and shadows of the ceremonial law. There were copies of the true heavenly things. But now in Jesus Christ, those types and shadows are fulfilled, never to be used again, because the perfect sacrifice, the true heavenly sacrifice, Jesus Christ, has actually accomplished redemption. Those copies and shadows did not accomplish salvation. They pointed to the one who would. But now that Jesus Christ has come, the Lamb of God who actually takes away the sin of the world, we know the gospel in greater depth, in more fullness. It is the word of the truth. The heavenly things have actually come down to us in the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the gospel that we know and enjoy is not a different gospel from what Abraham and Moses and David enjoyed, but it is the gospel better. It is the gospel turned all the way up because salvation has been accomplished. The kingdom of God has actually come in the coming of Jesus Christ. The gospel now, the gospel message is a word of truth, not of copies and types and shadows, but of the real thing as Jesus Christ has actually accomplished redemption in his work for us as mediator and savior. The gospel is no longer given in earthly forms, in types and shadows of the ceremonial law. It is now given in fullness because the gospel refers not to a Christ who is yet to come, but to a Christ who has come and who has accomplished redemption for sinners like you and me. Think of it this way, as the, as the Bible uses the words true and truth in this sense, as I, I think Paul is using the word there when he talks about how the gospel is the word of the truth, referring to the highest and heavenly things, not to earthly copies. Think about, about those familiar words of Jesus himself in John 14, when he says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. The disciples there are asking Jesus, what is the way to the Father? Can we go that way with you? And Jesus makes clear that he is going to heaven. He is going there to prepare a place for us. And so Jesus, as the way, is the way to heaven. As the truth, Jesus is the embodiment of heaven. As those real things, those real heavenly things of salvation actually accomplished are done in him. He is the embodiment of heavenly things, unlike the shadowy tabernacle and temple before him. And as the life, Jesus is the life of heaven and gives heavenly life to all who are in him by faith. So these real things, these true things have actually come to us in Jesus Christ. What Abraham and David, what the patriarchs and prophets knew from a distance 
we know up close. The Bible talks about how Moses knew God and saw, saw his backside and the glory that shone on his face as he saw God in that provisional form. It was a glory that was fading away and nearer to death than to life. But the glory of God as it is dawned in Jesus Christ is not a provisional form where we see the back of God. We see him face to face in the face of Jesus Christ. So it is not a different gospel. It is the gospel better. It is the word of of not things that are yet to come. It, It is the word of things that have come. The word of the truth of heavenly things actually dawned in Jesus Christ. So this gospel that has come to the Colossians, this gospel that has come to us now, even better because we have the fully written word of God, unlike the Colossians had, this gospel that comes to us is no longer one of anticipation, waiting for a Christ to come. It is a gospel of realization, of salvation fully accomplished and actually applied to sinners by the power of the Holy Spirit. How great is your privilege, believer, that you are a member of the new covenant in which Jesus Christ has actually fulfilled all the types and shadows of the law and has accomplished redemption for you such that you know God not indirectly through earthly forms, but directly in him as the high priest, ultimate prophet, and king of kings. How great is our privilege to live in this era of God's covenant of grace. So this message has come to the Colossians, and that leads us secondly to see the life-giving power of that gospel, the life-giving power of the gospel. That's in verse 6. Speaking of the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So, picking up on the, on the same thought of this gospel as the word of truth, not a, an affirmation of something that is yet to come, but a proclamation of what has already been done in the, in the crucified and risen Christ. Paul is picking up on and expanding on this gospel message. So in light of this gospel message that we have better, better than our, our forefathers before the coming of Christ, where we know a Christ uh, who is not yet to come, but who has come and accomplished redemption, this gospel, likewise, does not just fit with, is not only for the one nation of Israel, it is a gospel that must spread through, to all the nations of the earth. The gospel was confined to types and shadows under the old covenant and was limited to the one nation of Israel. But now with the coming of Jesus Christ, the gospel is no longer for the one nation of Israel. It is for all the nations. This is a gospel that is so big and expansive, we might say, it cannot be confined to one nation. It must go to all the nations as it has come even to us, to the Gentiles. Thank God that it has come to us lest we would remain in our sins and be lost for all eternity. This gospel message, the nature of it must spread to all the world because the gospel message is about a Savior who is sufficient to save all kinds of saviors all kinds of sinners, rather, from all nations and throughout all history. 
this gospel message, since it speaks of the risen and reigning Christ, it must expand beyond the nation of Israel to all the nations. That is the nature of God's kingdom, as the kingdom has been taken from Israel and given to the Gentiles, as Jesus says in Matthew 21. Notice also this this amazing, perhaps unexpected language that Paul uses about the the gospel message there in verse 6, how it is bearing fruit and increasing. Now, next time we're willing, we'll see in verses 9 and 10 how Paul is praying for his people that they themselves would bear fruit and increase. Verse 10, bearing fruit in in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So we, in in our sanctification, are to grow, to bear fruit and increase in, in knowledge and good works. But here, Paul is saying not that we bear fruit and increase, but that the gospel message itself is bearing fruit and increasing. Why is that? Well, this language is similar to that mandate, that commission that Adam was given in Genesis chapter 1. You may know that as the, as the cultural commission given to Adam, where he is told to, with Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So what's the connection here to Adam's mandate to be fruitful, to bear fruit and multiply, and the language here used of the gospel as it bear fruits, bears fruit and increases? Well, something like this. How the first Adam, as the first representative of the human race, he was to fill the earth with worshipers, to spread the glory of God throughout all the earth. Since he failed to do that, now the second Adam, Jesus Christ, he is filling the earth with worshipers by his life-giving word. What Adam failed to do in filling the world with the glory of God, with worshipers to praise the triune God, the second and last Adam has successfully done in his life-giving word, the gospel, the gospel which reconciles sinners to God and makes sinners into worshipers. Adam was commissioned to do something in the old creation, to fill it with worshipers. But now that this creation is cursed, Jesus Christ, the last Adam, is doing a work of new creation by means of his life-giving gospel message. He is He's saving sinners out of this sin-cursed world, out of membership in this era of death and darkness, and translating us into his kingdom, which is a world order, a realm of life and light and blessedness. And the means by which he does that is the proclamation, the reading, teaching, and preaching of his sweet gospel, which is a gospel that reconciles sinners to a holy God to bring us into communion with him as Adam should have done but failed to do. And so this gospel message is, a, is an amazing, living, life-giving thing. Not only does it refer to the one who is the living Savior, the life-giving Savior who gives us the life that he himself has as raised from the dead, but that gospel message itself, as that, that life-giving Savior speaks that gospel message through his ambassadors, it itself bears fruit. It increases, and it conforms us to the image of that Savior of which of whom it speaks. We'll come back to look more at verse 6 later on, but let's move, up, move ahead to see thirdly 
the faithful ministry of the gospel. The faithful ministry of the gospel. So again, there in verse 7, we see another hint of the background. Verse 7, just as you learned it, this gospel message, from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. So again, we we mentioned this uh, throughout the series now, the background of of this epistle, that this Colossian, Epaphras, travels 100, 120 miles west to Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. He hears the Apostle Paul preach, probably in, recorded there in Acts chapter 19. Epaphras is converted. He goes back home to Colossae. He proclaims this gospel message, this gospel of, of salvation fully accomplished in Jesus Christ, of a hope laid up for sinners in heaven to, his, to those in his hometown in, in Colossae. He plants this church. And now at the occasion of the writing of this letter, Epaphras has gone to Rome to be with Paul for a while to get some help on, this, on dealing with this Colossian heresy that is going through uh, this region at the time. So Epaphras, not as impressive or as learned as the Apostle Paul, just a regular guy by, uh, by, by all standards, he is still able, he is still the, the recipient of and the proclaimer of this life-giving message of the life-giving Savior, whereby sinners who are dead in trespasses and sins receive newness of life and fellowship with the triune God in union with the resurrected Christ. He heard this message, he was converted by this message, and now he takes this message to proclaim it to other sinners who need to hear it and who need to be made right with God in Jesus Christ. Notice how Paul describes this minister, this servant of Jesus Christ in verse 7. Epaphras is a beloved fellow servant. More more literally, you you could put there fellow slave, that Paul is a slave of Christ. Epaphras is a slave of Christ. Timothy is a slave of Christ, whereby only Jesus Christ is the master, and whatever we proclaim is not what we make up or think is a good idea, but only what the master gives us to proclaim. We do not add to it, which is something the Colossians need to hear, as the Colossian heresy says you do need to add to this gospel message. Christ is insufficient. You must add to him. But no, these humble servants, these humble slaves of Jesus Christ are insistent. We have all that we need in this Savior, and we have all we need in the proclamation of the gospel of that Savior. Notice also, perhaps most importantly in verse 7, how Epaphras, this servant of Jesus Christ, is described. Second half of verse 7, he is a faithful minister of Christ. He is faithful. He is not nice or a good speaker or a good communicator or a very charismatic personality and leader. He is faithful. And that word faithful there has very heightened significance, especially from the words of our Lord. What, is, what are the words that will be pronounced to those in Jesus Christ as we enter our reward, as we enter the fullness of, to receive our hope, our inheritance on the last day? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Not well done, good and popular. Not well done, good and, and nice, 
well done, good and faithful servant. As a faithful servant, Epaphras, all ministers, all officers of Jesus Christ are to take the things from Christ and to apply them to the people of Christ. We are to point people to Christ and confront them with Christ. We don't add anything to him. There's nothing to be added to him. He is a full and sufficient Savior. And so to be faithful to him, we don't need to think about how to get more people to come to church, to water down this message so that we can have as many people come as possible. We want to proclaim this gospel and proclaim it as faithfully as we possibly can so that sinners will be made right with God by faith in the Savior. Our calling as servants of Jesus Christ is to be faithful, to attend to what the master has given, to unpack what the master has given, to confront people with what the master has given, not to modify it or make it palatable to contemporary hearers, but to be faithful to the Savior and let him deal with the results. Now, of course, Ministers, servants should be, should be nice, should be good speakers, but as a function of being faithful, of faithfully proclaiming the gospel of this heavenly hope. And if there are young people here considering going off to, to school or to work somewhere else and you look for a church home, look for the church home where the minister is faithful, not necessarily any of those other things we mentioned. Is he faithful to Christ or not? That is the deciding factor. That leads us fourthly and finally to see the fruit of the gospel. We've seen the faithful ministry of the gospel. Now, fourthly, the fruit of the gospel. And that's there in verse 8, how Epaphras has made known to us, to, to Paul and to Timothy, your love in the Spirit. Now, we saw this last time as Paul mentioned those three Christian graces, faith, love, and hope in verses 3 to 5. There in verse, verse 4, middle of verse 4, how Paul is grateful for the love that you have, you Colossian believers have, for all the saints. And now, as we come to verse 8, Paul is revisiting that, showing us from another angle, or, or I should say from its, um, from its deepest perspective, that this love for all the saints, where there is true affection and seeking of goodwill of believer with believer, that is a work of God the Holy Spirit. Love in the Spirit, in verse 8, that is evidence that we understand the gospel. Understanding, that, that is the, one of the practical outworkings there in verse 6, that this, this gospel that is bearing fruit and increasing it also does among you, verse 6, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Do you understand this grace of God? Do you understand this gospel, this good news of the risen Christ? Not can you articulate it in an external fashion like even the devils can do, but do you understand it in here? Do you understand that it is for you that Jesus died for sinners and that you are a sinner and need the life-giving power of Jesus Christ to translate you from death into newness of life in him? Do you understand that you are a sinner in need of this all-sufficient Savior? Well, one evidence, 
one fruit that we understand this gospel message, this message of the truth, is love for one another in the Holy Spirit. Love in the Spirit here, you could say, is love derived from the Spirit. The Holy Spirit in in the New Testament belongs to this aspect of salvation, of subjective renewal and the renewed state of sinners. The Holy Spirit, John 6, 63, is the giver of life. And so it is only the Holy Spirit, as Paul makes clear here in verse 8, it is only the Holy Spirit who can enable to selfish sinners who insist on their own ways and preferences and rights to actually love one another truly and sincerely. The Holy Spirit in the New Testament stands for the living, energizing, creative grace of God. True faith in the word of truth, this gospel message, manifests in true love for those who also believe this gospel message. We talked a bit last time about what love is, what true biblical love is. Love is a spiritual embrace of person to person. Listen to this fuller definition of the old Dutch pastor Wilhelmus Abrockel. Love is the congenial frame of heart of God's children, worked by God, whereby their heart is engaged with desires to have harmonious fellowship with their neighbor, that is to say, fellow believer, and to seek their welfare as well as their own. This is obviously a supernatural work of God's grace, where we as sinners who are turned in on ourselves and look out for number one, could as the people of the risen Christ turn outward, be outward facing, and seek the well-being, the eternal good of one another in Jesus Christ to pray with one another, to pray for one another, to encourage one another in this gospel of the risen Christ, true love and affection for our fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus, evidence that we have understood the gospel, the message of the truth. Well, in conclusion, we need to consider that same practical aspect we talked about a second ago. In verse 6, the nature of this gospel message it is bearing fruit and increasing. It is, that, that is the nature of this gospel message of the risen Christ. It can no longer be confined to one nation as it was under the old covenant. It must expand. It must go to the nations as God's kingdom has come and includes all nations. It is bearing fruit and increasing even to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. And as it has come to you, do you understand it? Have you heard it? Has it penetrated your heart and shown you, I am a sinner and I need the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ? Think about how this gospel of of truth, this message of truth here, how it answers the Colossian heresy addressed um, throughout, throughout Colossians. This Colossian heresy being basically, you need to add to Jesus. Jesus gets you started, but you need to add to him by working and trying to get better access to God apart from Jesus. Douglas Moo talks about how the false teaching, this false teaching will hold no attraction for the Colossians if they come to know and understand that they have received the true word of God and that they have been transferred by God's own power into the new realm of God's own Son. And so this gospel message, it is externally unimpressive. 
it is delivered by perhaps unimpressive messengers. By contrast, this Colossian heresy saying that we need to add to Jesus, it sounds very sophisticated. It is sophisticated unbelief. It is interesting. It tickles the ear. The person who said it to me was a very charismatic speaker. But by contrast, the gospel message that is outwardly unimpressive carries within it the power of God himself to save and to change and to grow sinners into the image of Jesus Christ. Inside that false message from the Colossian heretics, outwardly it is impressive. Inwardly, it is full of dead men's bones. And that that death-giving message will lead to the eternal death of all who hear and believe a message that would pretend to add to Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, do not add to him, draw from him all that you need for life and godliness. That is the, the fullness of Jesus Christ is displayed in this gospel message, the word of the truth. Think about how, how the, the Bible talks about this gospel message. It is a, a word of truth, as we've seen here, of final and ultimate self-revelation of God in Jesus Christ. The heavenly things themselves have come down to us in Christ. No more types and shadows. No more copies of heavenly things in the ceremonial law. No more animal sacrifices reminding us that we can never pay for our sin. But our sin has been paid for as Jesus Christ, the heavenly man, has paid for our sins once and for all in his death and resurrection. And now his gospel is a gospel that that speaks of his fully accomplished work. The gospel is a word of life. Paul says that in Philippians 2.16. It is a word that leads to life. It is a message that has the power of God himself to give newness of life. Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. 2 Corinthians 5. The gospel message is is one of reconciliation between a holy God and unholy sinners. The gospel message is a message of salvation. Gerhardus Voss talks about how we are to respond to the word of God in the proclamation of it. God acts in and through his word. Thus the word has the same power and effect that belong to God himself. Because the word of God confronts man with God personally, He cannot, in the presence of it, remain neutral and treat it after an indifferent, disinterested fashion. It is a challenge to his soul that must provoke reaction and incite to faith or unbelief according to the inner disposition of the heart with reference to God. So every time you hear the Word of God read or taught or preached, every time the Word goes out to you, the gospel message calling you to repentance and faith, You have heard God himself speak therein. And when you hear God speak, you cannot walk away from that interaction unchanged. You're either softening and and submitting yourself to him in humility, trusting in him, or you are hardening yourself in unbelief. And as as the book of Proverbs says, he who hardens his heart will be broken beyond repair. Are you listening to and understanding this gospel message, or are you hardening yourself against it? Think of how the book of Amos talks about the coming and the going of God's word. 
Amos chapter 8 speaks of how there are coming days, speaking of the the last days, the, the days in which we live, when there will be a curse of the famine of God's word. So how can that be? That there is going to be a taking away of, a curse of, a lack of God's word, when here in this passage we have seen that God's word is bearing fruit and increasing. How can that be? Because Jesus Christ received that curse of the famine of God's word in our place. Remember what Jesus said on the cross when he cried out there, bearing your sin, my sin upon himself and paying for it? What did Jesus say there? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what response did Jesus get from God? Nothing. Nothing. There was no response from heaven. Jesus Christ received the curse of the famine of God's word. He did not hear from God. He received that curse of the famine of God's word so that we could receive the blessing of God's word. Jesus Christ sought the word of the Lord but could not find it, as that curse in Amos 8 makes clear. He sought the the word of the Lord but couldn't find it. He received the famine of God's word so that we could receive the life-giving word of God, the gospel of his grace. Jesus Christ received a word of curse so that we could receive the life-giving word of truth. And now in Jesus Christ and the full giving of his spirit to the nations, there is no famine of God's word, no famine of the gospel, the heavenly message of salvation accomplished in Jesus Christ, Rather, there is the spread of that gospel to all the nations. The first Adam was to fill the first creation with worshipers of God. The second and last Adam is doing a work of new creation, sending out his word of truth to make worshipers of God, unlike what Adam did. And so we need to answer this question. You need to answer this question for yourself. What have you done with the gospel, the word of truth? In God's grace, this gospel has borne fruit. It has increased throughout the world. It has even reached to us, to the Gentiles. But have you received it? Do you understand it? If so, how great is your blessing since you have trusted the gospel of the risen Christ? If not, if you have rejected this word, how great is your curse since you have rejected not prophecies and types and shadows, but the heavenly realities themselves. And God's word is clear that a land that is drunk, the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. How you respond to the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ has eternal significance. And so, people of God, like these Colossians, our forefathers, let us prize this gospel of Jesus Christ, this word of truth. Receive it. Lay it up in your heart. Fathers and mothers, tell your children this gospel, the word of the truth. Let us never forget that when when the word of truth comes to us, we are coming into contact with the risen Christ himself. His words have life-giving power. And so let us hear the voice of that shepherd. Let us follow him. His gospel is not a gospel of promise, but of fulfillment. 
His gospel is not a gospel of types and shadows, but of the real thing. His gospel is not one that is partial and provisional, but a gospel of fullness. His gospel is not a gospel of earthly copies, it is of heavenly realities. His gospel is not one of anticipation and preview, but a gospel of redemption fully purchased and freely applied to us in him. Listen to him. Respond in trust and adoration and obedience. As Jesus himself says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Listen to his voice, child of God. And may this gospel of heavenly hope in our risen Savior always bear fruit and increase in our midst.